Kia I'm Kate Kimasalamani and this is The Detail. Today, the festival organisers who now have to plan for disaster. Auckland's Diwali Festival, the Hindu celebration of lights, is one of the largest cultural events in the city, drawing in around 60,000 people over two days. Pacifica attracts similar numbers and the Lantern Festival for Chinese New Year sees around 180,000 people over four days. The festivals are organised six months, sometimes even a year in advance. They're organised by ATED, the council's tourism and economic development arm. But in March this year, the organisers of events like Pacifica and Diwali were thrown a major curveball, the Christchurch terror attacks. The Joint Intelligence Group has been deployed and police are putting all of their resources into this situation. The Defence Force are currently transporting additional police staff to the region. Our national security threat level has been lifted from low to high. With that security risk in mind and the deployment of Auckland-based police to Christchurch, the last day of Polyfest as well as the Pacifica Festival that had been scheduled for the following week were both cancelled. The attack struck during the Pacific Festival season in New Zealand and led to an early closure of the world's biggest Polynesian dance festival held in Auckland. On Saturday, Polyfest shuttered its third and biggest day out of safety concerns and in a show of solidarity. And post-March 15, event organisers now have to prepare for the worst. Police did have to be armed. Um, that was one of the things that had to come with it. So before, yes, police were there. Armed, probably not. There are barriers that come now that, that do provide an ability to crowd control but are much easier to move in the event of an emergency. Six months on, festivals are on again, but the planning process is more complicated. 80s Lisa Satani told me all event organisers and security companies across the country have had to be retrained. It's a significant concern, obviously, because it's a significant concern for the country and definitely something that we had to look at immediately as soon as it happens. And one of our festivals we had to cancel due to what we saw as a risk that we, we really couldn't go ahead with. So we are very serious. The team has had to upskill on a number of things regarding that type of security around events now. What sort of measures are taken at the event itself? It's security awareness in um, specific areas and places. It's putting equipment uh, in place that might mitigate some threats towards crowds. What sort of equipment? So you'd look at, instead of maybe putting a a fence that could get pushed over or run into by maybe a vehicle, that you'd put a barrier that would actually stop vehicles from entering. Yes, the March 15 event, to try to keep people safe. Um, If something was to happen, what is the action plan to get them out of there safe? Where would they go? You know, you can't just stick barriers up and then think that they were stuck. So that, that sort of had to be the mindset that they had to think with. Pukitapapa local board member Ella Kumar started working on this year's Diwali festival eight months ago. The scale of that event has ramped up a great deal since she first got involved. I've been part of the volunteering team that started the events in 2002. So that's a long time. That was the first one that started in Auckland and pretty much been with that festival since then. Right. Yeah. And 
Where did that start? It started at Mahatma Gandhi Centre, which is on New North Road, and it was pretty much in the car park. So the main stage was in one part of the car park. Food stores were in the second part of the car park, and they had a few arts and crafts inside the kitchenette area. So you're looking at about a 1,000 people in the whole day event. Wow. Very small scale. Yeah. So that's grown slightly. <laughs> very, very. <laughs> and, of course, we're down to now. Like now we've got two days. So yeah. that was only a one-dayer. When you sit down and you start this plan of this is what we're going to do this year, what's yep. the step-by-step process? Okay. So if you Google Diwali 2020, we'll know straight away when the real Diwali date is. Yeah. In this case, we know this year it's October 27. Right. Um, so when Auckland Diwali is set, they can't do it in that week. Because the uh, five days leading up to Diwali is also very religious and very cultural. And people won't come out Mm. to do extra stuff. So Auckland Diwali, we'll have to think about how can we do it so people can still enjoy this Diwali and utilise what we're trying to give and bring community together without affecting the celebrations they have at home. So they have to go two weeks prior. Right. So And then they have to look at, because it's 18, they do have to look at the calendar of all events. So they do have to look at all these logistics before they just go and plonk in a date. Okay. Maybe one step before that, funding. <laughs> yes. So funding and permit, Yeah. once that's confirmed, then the logistics of next events. So the step-by-step process is pretty much trying to get the interest gauged mm-hmm. and get people to send in the applications of stall. Uh, they have for arts and crafts and performers. So this year when you got together in February... Yep. In March, shortly after yep. we had the Christchurch attacks, yep. did that throw a spanner in the works? I think at, at that time, the events that probably took place in the first 8 to 12 weeks, mm. it would have been really hard because just bringing people together is a big responsibility. Mm. And not just events like these, I think it came down to any big place they would have bring, people bringing, coming together, from prayer places through to Westfield Shopping Centre through to local community events, we had to think twice about it as well because you're bringing people together. But that's in the first eight to 12 weeks. After that, I think every any event I've been part of or any group that brings people together have always had to have an action in mind. And there's already risk factors that are put into place for certain things. This is another one that has to be added into mm. because we've never gone through it. I think there's always going to be that level of what if, mm. and if so, what have we got into place? So there was a lot more police around this time. And I think the police did have to be armed. Um, that was one of the things that had to come with it. So before, yes, police were there. Mm. Armed, probably not. Mm. But now that had to be put into place, and a lot more had to be attended. Right. So these sort of things had to be taken too. A bit more thought about people. I suppose as a volunteer, I just kept out a look. I remember it was was last year or the year before we saw a bag left by one of the poles. Now, this bag could easily be a costume bag, but you don't know. So we had to get it checked first, get it secured to make sure nothing else was left in there. So these sort of things were a bit more alert with. People wanting to leave bags would be a bit more careful, Mm. would say, oh, no, we don't take your bag. You take your bag with you if you don't know who they are. So things, things, I think, had to be a bit more cautious. Yeah, right. People, I think we had to have our eyes open a lot more. The one that happened at that time, um, I think Pacifica, Pacifica was the closest, but that was t- really close. Yeah. And we were still in that period of time where everyone had to be cautioned. 18 Steve Armitage says when his team got together after the mosque attacks, everyone was still in shock. 
the team came together and we had an initial conversation about, you know, first of all, trying to understand the situation that had, that had taken place in, in Christchurch and what what work we had to deliver over the course of the next week, knowing that there was going to be, um, you know, quite appropriately, a very strong emphasis and need to focus on, on Christchurch. We did initially think that, um, you know, in order to demonstrate that as a country, um, you know, we we wanted to stand with Christchurch. There was a, a view that sh- that was shaped within the team that was we would like to proceed because we felt that bringing people together at a time of national mourning, there was some value in that. Um, you know, people often pr- find solace in, in being together. And we felt that Pacifica provided potentially a very unique opportunity for us to do that. But, you know, when, when the police were very clear um, in their early engagement with us that they had some decisions to make around where to deploy the resource, and when that position became very clear about, um, unfortunately, that that was going to require resource to be made available to other parts of the country, you know, as I say, public safety being very, very paramount in our mind, we didn't feel that we could run an event without the police presence being at the level required to deliver the safe event. Mm. And I suppose the Pacifica Festival stands for the very thing that the attack was against, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, all of our um, all of our cultures celebrate what is unique and and special to them very well, but. There is something very particular about the, the Pacifica culture um, and the way that they come together, the, the friendly competitiveness of, of the islands and the way that they celebrate um, you know, their performances and their dance with such um, such vigour and enthusiasm. It, it's quite something to get caught up in. And, but, you know, um, it, it was too close to the tragic events and, and with the police needing to be um, elsewhere, it, it was, um, as I say, a pretty straightforward decision at the end of it. How have security measures changed since March? Uh, well, to an extent, it, it, it hasn't changed because, as I say, we we've, we've, we follow global best practice around preparing for um, any possible eventuality. If we do have to have large-scale evacuations, if, if uh, for weather events or anything of that nature, we're, we're pretty well prepared and we've got all the key agencies involved in understanding what their respective roles are. So obviously the, the tragedy brought a focus to events in the immediate aftermath. There's constant evolution, I think, in terms of you know, the various aspects that bring an event together. So the example of barriers is an interesting one. You don't tend to see the metal barriers that we've become accustomed to in the past. There are barriers that come now that, that do provide an ability to, to crowd control but are much easier to move in the event of an, an emergency uh, so people aren't getting hung up trying to move a, you know, a heavy piece of, of metal or something that's attached to a fence or, or can create a, a bottleneck, which you know, obviously we want to avoid that type of situation. I think, you know, surveillance has obviously improved a lot and, you know, we, you, you, you don't go to many international cities where you don't expect that there is CCTV footage, which is keeping an eye on, on proceedings and can be utilised in, in the event of an emergency and again, we work with the police to ensure that where possible and where practical, we can use that type of technology. It will be a very prominent um, and has been discussed in the media already around 2021 and 
the America's Cup space, but also around APEC and how we manage the flow of the extreme VIPs that will be in town at that time. Authorities in Auckland are in the process of putting in a place to plan a plan to combine the city's CCTV cameras into a single system while also adding hundreds, potentially thousands of new cameras with advanced automatic processing capabilities such as facial recognition technology. Auckland Transport, which is driving the project, likes to describe the point of the exercise in terms of improving public safety, but it doesn't take a great deal of imagination or paranoia to anticipate it being used in ways that are more intrusive and potentially even Orwellian. Now, the police won't rule out using facial recognition technology from an expanded network of CCTV cameras in Auckland. There is a general sense of you know, the event space having to lift to, to meet you know, the challenges that, that, that we can have to deal with around um, managing large groups of people in confined spaces. Do you have a meeting to sort of run through the risks and how you mitigate them? Yes, we do. And, and we have a, a risk register. We have an internal risk manager um, who works with the team directly. So there are, there are ded- there's a dedicated resource that, that is very much focused in on this space and makes sure that from a risk perspective, um, our board um, and the mayor and council can have confidence that we have you know, anticipated any eventuality um, and can deal with the risk appropriately in the event it arises. Is it true that Auckland events' biggest risk is still the weather? <laughs> <laughs> it is, yeah, it is absolutely a factor. Bad weather didn't get in the way of this year's Diwali festival and months of planning and implementing new security procedures paid off, with close to 60,000 people flooding into Queen Street over two days. I got amongst the crowd to ask people what had drawn them to the traditional Hindu festival in the middle of Auckland City. Because we like curry. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> we love curry, but that band was fantastic. Yes. The atmosphere, yeah, so it's a beautiful day, so we just come over to check out the Indian culture. It's all good, eh? I enjoy it. Good atmosphere and good cultural experience, eh? We love Indian things and we love yes. the clothes. And we have a curry night. The people night. are lovely. We go to curry night once yeah. a fortnight, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. Really? A, a group of us, love yeah. The For Ella Kumar, it's been a busy time. She's not only one of the key organisers, but she's been performing and choreographing dancers at every Diwali festival in Auckland. So I look after all the artists that come through and check in and to make sure they're looked after to what their needs are before they get onto the stage. Um, so they come in with their groups and we make sure they're sorted with costumes, props, music, and then they go to the stage people and then they get onto the stage. Since you started yeah. in 2002, what are the differences that you've seen? Okay, so the, uh, in performing-wise, yeah. um, the first event in 2002, like I said, there's only about a 1,000 people that attended mm-hmm. and could be a bit less at that time. And we had a Bollywood competition and we did my group with about uh, 30 people on stage right. at one, one song. Yeah. Now, the other group did a cultural traditional yeah. and there was only two dancers <laughs> oh, no. on the stage, but the, the other group won. Okay. So that was fine. <laughs> We've let it go now. We've let it go. Yeah. I came second. Okay. <laughs> but since then, the growth of the Bollywood competition itself from year to year mm. has gone from like 5 to 10 to 15 to, like I said, about four years ago, we had uh, two full days of Bollywood competition. So the age group had to be changed as well. Now wow. we've got juniors and intermediate and then seniors. 
and that senior's one is on another day. So the level of now of the competition has taken to probably, I'd say, a very high level mm. of delivery. And the expectation of costume, the way you actually synchronise, mm-hmm. the way you actually deliver, the hours of practice that goes into these competitions uh, is huge. How, how many hours do you estimate? I think competition would be at least 12 weeks prior wow. it starts. So the actual dance choreography yep. um, would be probably 16 weeks, I'd say. You're looking at four months. So how many groups uh, roughly are there now that compete? Yep. This, this year we had 15, from the top of my head if I can remember, yep. on the... Seniors, we had 15, um, and the day before, we had uh, 10 to 12 juniors. Right. And then we had 10 to 12 or 15 intermediate. Yeah. So in total, you're looking at 50 groups again. Yeah. And, you know, earlier I showed you that photo of that little adorable one. little girl. <laughs> she's in her langa. Yeah. She's got a hand on her hip. Yep. And she must have been, I don't know, maybe eight years old. That's right, probably younger. Probably, probably younger. younger. Yeah. And her mother said... She's performing oh, with okay. Radio Tarana. That's the third time she's performing. She's four. So, yeah, we are excited about it. You know, it's such an involvement from the Indian community That's at such right. a young age. Yep. So how big of a event is this for the Indian community? Yeah. Well, my daughter was three years old when we started in 2002. And she was on stage. As well. Yeah, right. and now she's 20 yeah. and she was on stage. Right. So I think they start at a very young age yeah. and I think that's one thing good probably with the community mm-hmm. bringing that in. And that's something that has changed over the years. There's a lot more Bollywood dance schools, which we never had. Yeah. <laughs> so when I started, there was probably none that I can think of. Um, the people that were in my dance group have started Bollywood dance groups. So that just shows the change that has happened. And has that come from events like Diwali? I think it's come from Diwali. We talked about uh, the involvement of the Indian community, but in terms of uh, diversity and inclusion, what has the event done to provide that? Yeah, I think um, over the years I have had volunteers that are not Indian. Right. And that opens a lot of educational ways, pathways for people through volunteering where they actually learn about each other's cultures. Vice versa, I go and do lantern. So I learn about Chinese community yeah. and Pacifica. You know, we have these opportunities that are given to us. And I think we learn a lot in two days about the people, the food, what they do with these events and activities and how it, you make friendships, you, you know, socialise. And I think it goes further than the actual event. And I think that's what we forget sometimes, what these events do for people. I'm Keith Kimasalamani, and that's the detail for today. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz, made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. Hit the subscribe button to stay across the detail every day. And if you're on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners find us. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansel and produced by Sharon Brett Kelly and Alexia Russell. Matewa.